Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar or comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to welcome Max Dushu. Max Dushu founded the Suppressed Histories Archives in 1970 to document global women's history, track patterns of domination, and the experiences of women in the full spectrum of world cultures. She is internationally known for her expertise on ancient female iconography, matricultures, patriarchal systems, witch hunts, and female spheres of power. She has built a collection of 40,000 slides and digital images from which she has created 130 visual talks on female cultural heritages. Her legendary slideshows bring to light female realities hidden from view, from ancient female figurines to women leaders, priestesses, clan mothers, warriors, and rebels. For 44 years, she has been presenting these visual talks in North America, Europe, and Australia, and now via webcast and online courses. She has created two videos, Woman Shaman and Women's Power in Global Perspective. Her book, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Culture, was published in 2016 by Valeda Press. Her work is followed by 156,000 readers on Facebook and thousands more on her website, suppressedhistories.net. Max, welcome to Precipice. Thank you, Annie. Glad to be here. So you recently published this book. And my understanding is you started the book in 1978. uh, And when you set out to write it, you thought it would only take a few years. So (laughs) how did a project that you expected to take only a few years expand into nearly 40? Well, you know, these are difficult subjects to discover information about. And, you know, I initially thought I'm going to do one volume and it's going to be about women's spiritual traditions in Europe and the suppression of women's power in Europe through the witch hunts. But what were once chapters turned into volumes. (laughs) It just kept expanding and I didn't feel that the picture was complete so I just kept going. And, you know, then uncovering more things. And, and so it just got more and more complex and richer. And I kept, I just kept searching. And finally, a couple years ago, I sat down and said, okay, this is ridiculous. Just stop. Just start turning out these volumes and, and stop trying to get the last answer to all these other questions. You know, because I'm still discovering things every day. And, and so I, I finally got this book out, which was, you know, an epic endeavor. It just, it's. The thing is, with with this kind of, it's not just history. It's not just 
anthropology or linguistics or archaeology or even folk tradition. You have to kind of integrate all of those what are separate fields in academia and see where is the information about women because it's all it's all torn into shreds and you have to kind of weave it back together. And so that's why it took so long, you know, was to really document it, not just what I thought, but to try and really see what was in the cultural record, you know, what was what remains to be read and interpreted and, you know, what's authentic as opposed to claims that are floating around there about Celtic Wicca or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so like really trying to see, and, and, and as I completed the book, I realized that what I'm doing is an ethno history as much as it's women's history, you know, because it's looking at these, at the cultural record and the, there, these are ethnic groups. It's basically tribal Europe, you know, before mm-hmm. all that got torn apart. This information is just not available in the top layer that most people have access to. You know, you have to dig into, into really specialized scholarly studies to get at it. So I'm wondering about that piece. I I found myself as I was reading the book wondering, how do you train your eyes to see what's not visible or or what's not authorized to be seen? How do you sniff out the traces of what was lost or buried within that which is still here? Mm -hmm. Good question. It's... I mean, what the, my first lens is women. Where are the women? And, and women are the common people. I'm not looking for, you know, uh, aristocratic nuns and so forth. But, you know, and then and also just trying to see, even if it's not about women, but it's about herbs or it's about the drum or it's about um, healing ceremonies in a sweat house, all those things. You know, it's just basically my process was to just be scanning, scanning, scanning and to read a lot and looking through a lot of different types of sources in order to see where is there some reflection of the old ethnic cultures, you know, and especially the spiritual ways or the healing modalities. And a lot of that led me into language because the language itself has knowledge embedded in it about how people viewed the world, the names they gave to things, the names they gave to the witches and we might talk about that, really inform us about a whole cultural worldview that's not obvious to us from most of what's written about witches or wise women or herbalists as, as we see it in, in, in modern consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in the book about etymology that it was fascinating about how words began and how they changed and, and how much concerted effort it took to shift the meaning of words over time um, yeah. and how powerful language is as a carrier of culture. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm wondering, one of the words that was really interesting that I'm wondering if you could speak to is the word weird and how yeah. that came to mean, how, where, how, where it began before mm-hmm. it became what we understand it to mean now. There's a, there's a very long through line with weird and I'm going to go backwards okay because I think it'll make more sense to people I mean for us now weird it's like it's eerie it's strange it's spooky you know bizarre also in modern English but if we look into medieval English weird meant destiny it had to do with this it was a 
an eerie power in a way because it was something that was ineffable. It was something very powerful that you that could not necessarily be known. I mean, it could be known by the wise or the seers, but uh, it was a force that acted on reality, that shaped reality. And this was really based in, in turn in an older concept of the fates. And they go by different names, but in uh, Germanic tradition, especially, say, Anglo-Saxon in what's now England, the three weird sisters was the name for the fates. And so it didn't mean the three strange, bizarro sisters. It meant the sisters of destiny. And so this is like in Macbeth, you know, you have the three weird sisters telling him what's going to happen, what he, you know, he's going to become the king of Scotland. And, you know, so there's this knowledge embedded because they are the shapers of reality. And then this word in turn, the, there was a name, a goddess name, weird, or weird in English, old, old pagan English, that is directly related linguistically to the name of the oldest of the Norns in Scandinavia, because these are both peoples that speak Germanic languages. And so that name in their language was Urd. And so this is something that linguists have looked at a lot, and Urd means became. Vervandi, the second of the Norns, means becoming, and Skuld, the oldest, the youngest of the Norns, means shall be. So there's this kind of like time-based notion of these three, of that which has been, that which is, and that which shall be. And those are all related. The, last, the Norns are the three weavers of fate, correct? Well, they're, they're the, the goddesses of destiny. You know, uh, weaving may or may not come into it, and that's a whole more complicated discussion. But... Uh, the, the final layer of this is all of these Germanic names come out of a much, much older root from a language that linguists call Proto-Indo-European. And so the Indo-European languages include Irish, German, Italian, Greek, Armenian, Persian, Sanskrit. It's a whole huge Eurasian language family. And so in that that proto-language, before all those groups split up, when they were part of the same cultural world, the projection is that the term was pronounced wert, and it meant to turn, to revolve, to spin. So there's this idea of rotation, the turning, the circular turning of time and space that's conceptually embedded in, in this, this old verb. And that this, in turn, in the Germanic languages, wound up becoming a verb of being and becoming. And so this is where you get this idea of Urd became, Vervande becoming, Skuld shall be, is that in their minds, these fates work with the very fiber and nature of being. And so that's, that's quite a lot over a long span of time, and we can't really access that knowledge except by looking at the linguistics you know, to really see the depth of those roots culturally that go back way, way, way before we have anything written uh, about the, the Weird Sisters or the Norns or any of the other European names for the fates. But we see how the names of the fates came about from knowing that, that root word. Mm-hmm. And how do you track them where it shifted? 
Well, you have to look at the words that have actually been written down somewhere. You know, and so linguists work a lot with attested words in various languages and they compare them and they have various ways of determining how they're related and which forms of it are older and what kinds of sound shifts they went through. But they're also tracking meanings. And so when we look at the meanings, that's where we see how the uh, interpretation of the of the concept shifts. Mm-hmm. So in the case of weird there are there's a very interesting book by a guy named Bauschatz that talks about this um, the 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 concept of weird and he has a lot of examples and other sources that I use as well that show us that even still in the Middle Ages when England was Christianized and it's all priests it's all male priests who are writing literature they are still using the word weird to mean destiny. You know, and even sometimes in very Christian contexts, you know, there's one line where they talk about Jesus Christ weird and erred unto the bliss. So, you know, he destined someone to heaven, basically. And so they there was an, two impulses going on among these, these Christian male writers. One was to retain the term and to Christianize, and the other was to completely demonize it and chuck it out. And eventually because it did have these very strong heathen associations, they chucked it out. So I've heard you describe your book as tracking the authentic heritage of Europeans pre-Christianity. Mm-hmm. And and this the linguistic tracking sort of goes back pre-Christianity. It seems like a lot of people of European descent have been searching for that heritage which in North America often takes the form of being drawn to the cultural traditions of First Nations peoples on this continent or to the practices of other cultures that have longstanding, often earth-based practices. And it seems like that some of what you've uncovered is that people of European descent do have that kind of heritage and do come from somewhere other than the Christian Europe that's in the history books. That's exactly right. And, you know, this has been a real issue because, as you know, there's been a lot of appropriation of of indigenous ways by people who are very hungry for something real that is not structured the way that that Western civ Christian culture, industrial, colonial culture is structured with its disenchantment of the world. And so they are perceiving very real needs and very, very important realities of, of, the spirit and the relation, you know, the, the way that spirit pervades everything in in the world, all all plants, all stones, all animals, all beings, you know, that there's a vital force to everything, consciousness to everything. And so they see this being expressed, especially in Native American cultures. And a lot of times people will just reach for that and say, you know, I need this and I want this. And so... That's that's caused a lot of problems because they have, uh, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of angles to this, but they really don't feel like they have access to their own ancestral ways. And this came up in the Sacred Stone Camp when a lot of young or pe- white people of whatever ages uh, came out there and were uh, wanting to be in support of the Native Water Def- Protector Movement. And so some of the elders there were saying to them, 
you need to look for your own ancestral heritages. And so, you know, this is something that, that a lot of indigenous leaders have been saying for a while. And I think that there's starting to be more consciousness among people of European descent that that's, that needs to happen. You know, that you can't just attach yourself. I mean, the, the criterion I use is, are you invited in? I'm not saying it's ever Ill, always illegitimate for someone of European descent to participate in something if they are following the the indigenous leadership. You know, I mean, there's their protocols to all of this. But, you know, the tendency is to come in and even appropriate, you know, and try to sell in some instances ways that they don't fully understand, you know, or or really even know how to participate in because of all the cultural blinders that, you know, we're brought up with, you know, in a very uh, appropriative colonial society. And so this this is something, I've seen this be an issue in many different contexts where, you know, you'll have new age people who are selling products that are based on indigenous symbols and ideas and names. And, um, you know, the sweat lodge has been a real bone of contention. And so going back to what I'm providing in the book is, and in in some of the other resources that will be published as I go along here, uh, there were sweat houses in Europe. And, you know, we have documentation for that in ancient Portugal and medieval Czechoslovakia and in Russia and in Ireland, many places, as well as the still living Finnish tradition of the sauna. And so the sweat house existed and it was a sacred tradition, you know, and so, and, and the drum, and there's many other things that you can find if you dig in ancestor veneration, if you dig into the European cultural record. It's just that we need to have an our own authentic place to stand and not just, you know, charge into somebody else's cultural heritage and say, okay, we want this too, this is going to be mine, or we're going to copy this even worse and then, uh, you know, basically be using this. And it's all because people know in some, some basic way that they have a birthright to truth and to ecstatic spiritual practice and to medicine ways. But the question is, how do we get that back? And can we really even authentically get it back if we're going to just steal it as everything else has been stolen? Well, the last question you asked, I'm curious your thoughts on on how do we get it back it, from the standpoint of and and can we get it back you know you've you've been looking at so many you've you've found all these threads and been trying to draw them back together in some way and i'm but there's a lot that was lost mm-hmm. and i'm wondering about your thoughts on you know is is there a a a, a grounded place for someone of european descent to to be able to stand when it's all a bunch of torn threads yeah well I think that there is a certain amount that we can get back as an inspiration and as guideposts what we are all going to be doing from here on out is not going to ever be exactly the same thing as they were doing in ninth century Lithuania or wherever right but we can have a framework 
you know, sort of a, a context that we're moving out of. And just as they did, I mean, all of these cultures were working with direct contact with spirit, you know, with earth, earthen mother, as they say in Anglo-Saxon, or whatever names they give to the, the, the spiritual beings, you know, the real beings. I'm not talking about entities in the sky who, who, you know, you have to believe in something that never existed. But, you know, the actual reality of earth, water, air, and, and fire. And with ancestral beings and with dreams and all of those things, with ecstatic drumming and dancing, with the round dance, um, we, we are going to have to find ways of reclaiming this. And people are doing this. In, in all kinds of ways. I mean, I think it's a process. We're in kind of a cauldron of recreation now, of seeing what works. I mean, the last 40 years, there's been the spiral dance in the neo-pagan communities. And there's many ways that this is already starting to unfold, you know, and new songs are being written and new stories are being told and art is being created and, and, ceremonial communities are gathering so those are things that are happening but what I find and for myself I know I need is we do have to have some form of guidance and we do have to have some form of story about who we are where we come from and this has been true of every movement you know if you look at enslaved peoples from Africa people who were brought over in the African diaspora, you know, they look back to African history as part of the story of who they are, as, as a source of ancestral power and strength. And that has been true of oppressed people throughout the world and throughout history. And I think that that is true also for people, many of whom uh, the European ancestors came over as indentured servants, they came over as refugees, uh, economic or otherwise, or, you know, all, all of those things, that there's a need there, too, to, to, to reclaim and to recognize and to resonate with uh, knowledge that has been cut off. Because in North America, the price of becoming the dominant cultural group, which is what happened with Euro-Americans, you know, the, was whiteness, to, to sign on for whiteness. And whiteness was a very crucial axis of the racial caste system in the United States. And so, um, you know, a lot of people don't, I don't relate to being white. I don't want to, I mean, white is not who I am. It's, uh, but, you know, it isn't, in fact. It's, it's a political category as part of a racialized caste system. But then in order for you to exist, you both have to recognize that that politics is defining political economic, social reality in North America, and also to have your own self-definition and reality of who you are and where you come from. And to me, that's the only way out, you know, at this precipice that we're standing at in this point in time, is that you have to both be able to hold the hard truths of the way that whiteness operates and how it involuntarily assigns unearned privilege to whole groups of people. And at the same time, to see that the price of that was a cultural deprivation. And so these immigrant families, the, the, the parents refused to teach, you know, Serbian to their children or whatever the language was. They, they had to give up their culture in order to become generic 
white American. And that was a loss. And so, you know, in, in that that those losses go back all the way to Europe. I mean, we're, we're talking about a process that went on over a thousand years, even before the colonization of the Americas, where you have this outlawing of the old ways, the old religions of the ethnic cultures by a Christian, a church-state alliance, the aristocrats and, you know, Roman Christianity and the patriarchal uh, constructs of that that institutionalized religion, you know, with its scriptures and, you know, with its all-male priesthood and all of those things. And so for, as women, we have like this very strong imperative to go back before that time to a point where we can see that there were female spheres of power and there were priestesses and there were ecstatic drummers and dancers who would go into states of deep spiritual union and from that place they could prophesy or they could heal you know um, this is something I talk about in the most depth with in the book uh, the book by the way is called Witches and Pagans Women in European Folk Religion and the chapter 4 is about women who they called Vüller and the, the singular would be Vulva and it means a woman with a staff so there was a sacred staff, and there's a way that this relates to the witches' wands in our storybooks. You know, the fairy tales are all about the witches' wands. And so that had a historical basis. Even the crystal ball has a historical basis. It turns up in the archaeology of women's burials in different parts of Europe. So, you know, a lot of this is connecting things back up. Well, it's time to take a short break, but we'll come back to this point when we come back. My guest today is Max Dushu, founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, a book 40 years in the making, part of a 15-volume series on the suppressed history of women. You can follow her work at www.suppressedhistories.net, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com 
In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is Max Dashu, expert on ancient female iconography, matricultures, patriarchal systems, witch hunts, and female spheres of power. She's the founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion. So I, I stumbled across a poem by Margaret Atwood just yesterday, and I wanted to read it as a starting point for where we go next. It's called The Moment. The Moment When... After many years of hard work and a long voyage, you stand in the center of your room, house, half acre, square mile, island, country, knowing at last how you got there and say, I own this, is the same moment when the trees unloose their soft arms from around you, the birds take back their language, the cliffs fissure and collapse. The air moves back from you like a wave, and you can't breathe. No, they whisper. You own nothing. You are a visitor, time after time, climbing the hill, planting the flag, proclaiming. We never belonged to you. You never found us. It was always the other way around. (laughs) One of the themes that runs through throughout your work and through the book is the disenchantment of the world. Mm-hmm. And there is a quote. I'm wondering if I can find it. Where is it? Um, oh, shoot. There, there was a quote somewhere in the book that, oh, here it is. Okay. It, um, this was from a parent, apparently a Latin penitential uh, who wrote, Some men are so blind that they bring their offerings to earth-fast stone 
and also to trees and to well springs and will not understand how stupidly they act or how this dead stone or that dumb tree might help them or give them health when these things themselves are never able to move from their place. Mm-hmm. That, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? The, that worldview. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing about that quote that I love is that the original was written in France, in Latin, and some Anglo-Saxon cleric translated this and he added bring their offerings to earth fast stone and to trees and to wells as the witches teach so we're seeing really he is pointing us right smack in the middle of a of a fact that these are teachings these were spiritual teachings that the witches were seen as spiritual leaders who showed people how to do ceremony and this was all earth-based ceremony Something very different than, you know, Christian theology. Can you speak to some of the role that women played in this, in the period of the time that the book focuses on? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there are a lot of references by priests trying to stamp all of this out to women doing healing ceremonies, uh, sometimes using water from south running springs, lots of sacred springs, sacred stones. Uh, A sick infant might be hung above a sacred spring in order to receive the vital power from that place, from the spirits of that place. And you have references to people coming, uh, not necessarily only to women, but to people in the forest who were, were staying way off from, you know, way off from the, the village itself in uh, secret parts of the forest, places of power where the diviners could be found and people would go and seek them out if they needed the answers to questions or if they needed healing or, you know, removing of, of bad luck or whatever it is that they're, they're being afflicted by. And so some of those were women. And, you know, uh, you have a lot of the witch names that refer to women as medicine, literally medicine women. The Anglo-Saxon word libestra means medicine woman. Lib is the same word, same root as life in English. And in Icelandic, it can mean amulet or herb. There's all these different directions that name went off into. But... They definitely had this idea of women who were working with the vital power that we all have in our bodies, that all plants have, that stones have. And so those are, those are just a few examples of what, you know, the penitential books, which were the priestly manuals to describe the priests telling each other, all oh, people do these things, try to see if you can stop them, you know, and said so they would, they would. They were interrogatories in many cases. You know, they would be sitting down with uh, a common person and saying, well, do you do this practice because this is forbidden? You know, do you have these ceremonies like some women do if there is a funeral that they sing certain things? They might do uh, uh, joking and laughing ceremonies over the dead or when the person is being carried out of the house to be buried they would they would toss water underneath the bed as it's being carried out underneath the beer of, of the dead person and so um, 
you know, these these are references to ceremonies that people were carrying on. In that case, it was Germany a thousand years ago. And a lot of this stuff is being described as in the hands of women. As you think about, the, I mean, you have such a vast body of work at this point. I'm wondering, as you look at the time we're in and and what you know of these these times past, what are some of the understandings or stories or deities or relationships that that you see would be most important to re-enter the world at this moment in time? Oh gosh, there's so many. I think that I and mean, I do think that the way that the ancients were talking about weird and fate as the 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 nature of being as fibers that are spun by the fates is mean, very meaningful to me because there's this, it's very animistic. It's the idea that everything is energy and that the flow of events is also energy and that it can be acted upon. Uh, so the fates are very meaningful to me in that way. Uh, the concept of earthen mother, as they called her in Anglo-Saxon or any of the various forms of the earth are, are important. I think that the practices of the Völler, the Scandinavian seeresses, are really full of important directions for us in that, you know, we're all seeking. We're, we're, we're dealing with such a huge array of emergencies and dangers that we're all facing in, in the world today that it becomes important to be able to have access to other ways of knowing. I mean, we'll certainly use our rational minds. We'll certainly use science wherever we can. But in some ways, you know, how do we cope? How do we cope emotionally? Or how do we even know what direction to go sometimes when things are looking very dangerous and, and difficult? And so the ceremonies of the Villa were for that. You know, for guidance, finding ways to seek guidance when you're just at the end of your rope and you're just ready to give up because you don't know what to do. Uh, that is something that is powerful. And the way they would do this ceremony that was called Seder, not to be confused with the, the uh, Passover Seder, but Seder meant basically a trance ceremony. And these wise women would go around from village to village with choruses and the choruses knew enchanting songs that would allow her to enter an ecstatic state. And then once she was in that, she would uh, begin be able to prophecy. And so I think we need access to that kind of inspirational uh, guidance. And we need also a reclamation of the female divine because we have this this domination uh, by patriarchal religion that has been, you know, it had taken over the world, basically. I mean, it is the ruling ideology of the world. And so I see that women especially are very demoralized because of a toxic culture that is set up to degrade and subordinate us at every turn. And so uh, the Kaliach, the figure of the old woman, the crone, the Deser, the female ancestors in Scandinavia, there's various different forms for this, is very uh, empowering for a lot of women to resonate with that and not the highly pornified uh, forms that even goddesses are being expressed 
as in in some circles, you know, to take us out of this this sexualization of women as you know that everything we are is about sexual attractiveness and uh, sexuality, and it's like that sexuality is great; it's part of the life force. But I think that we need to unburden ourselves of some of the cultural scripts, or you could call them cultural spells, about what it is to be woman that have been embedded in every magazine, television show, movie, you name it, whatever's out there on the internet, uh, all the pictures we see that make girls feel bad about their bodies, you know, from a very young age, you know. And and so we need those archetypes. Um, and we need to undemonize them as well. You know, in the medieval sources that I'm talking about, and which is in Pagan's, there are various goddesses. One of them is called the Witch Holda. And this name is really important connection because it was written by a priest about a thousand years ago. Uh, it connects with much more recent Germanic goddesses like Frau Holla and Perchta and other goddesses in medieval and even modern folk culture that are another form of the land, the mother of the earth the uh, one who sends babies from her pond and the one who, when she shakes out her feather bed, that's the snow falling on earth. So they had some beautiful stories and ways of looking at reality that um, are something that we can, you know, recode for our own cultural world. You know, something something to stand on. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was so amazing in reading the book was how many examples there were of women whose capacity to be very sensitive and attentive to the environment were that was a gift that was revered and i i think about oh wow if i if i had grown up with those those women or those goddesses as as my role models, right, as, as what was possible, how different it would be. That so, yeah. that so much of, um, so many of the gifts that women have to bring, w- the, the various versions of sensitivity and strength and capacity to see and feel are liabilities in our culture. Yeah. There's yeah. there's no place for them. And, yeah, all, all of these yeah. all these faculties that we have that don't get developed, you know, or that get actually actively suppressed. Yeah, I was on on. There was a section of the book where you described. I'm I'm not. I don't know how to pronounce this. Sitja uti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sitja uti or uti seta. They also call it. And this is one. To me, this is one of the most important things that I found. Because it really resonates anyway with my own spiritual practice, which is going to the land for to attune, you know, to to sit out on the land is basically what that that phrase is describing. So that you can access wisdom and truth and recalibrate yourself, you know, pour off and release all of the pain, the confusion, the trauma, the the dislocations. And then energetically receive, 
from the land, from the rock you're sitting on, from the river that you're gazing into, from the forest that you're inside, wherever it is that you are, the desert, that there's something about being on the land for an extended period of time. I mean, it could be many hours, it could be many days or weeks to get yourself back. And it's the self that that we're getting back is our real self and not the conditioned self that is you know, limited and, and afflicted in many ways, you know, diseased in some ways, that, that we get back to our core nature and that there are teachings in the land and there, because the land is alive. And so while we're, think, we're, we're there meditating on that rock, you know, and at a certain moment there's a bird call that's very noticeable, then you pay attention Okay, what what was that? What was I just thinking at that moment? And you know what was being highlighted? You know that the the universe is speaking to you, and actually saying, "Pay attention to that. Pay attention to that thing." You know that the animal calls can actually be meaningful. That the universe is responsive. You know if you're in that attuned state, if you are aware in a really deep way then you can gather knowledge in ways that are really, you know, all of this is so mystified very often when you read books about this uh, or, you know, just a lot of the teachings that are out there. People tend to really mystify it, but it's something that we all have that capacity in some measure. And it has to be experienced to really understand that, that, um, you have the ability to attune in that way. The The Norse term was utiseta, and then there was another term that, this is something the linguists brought up. You know, it just, that's why I love the linguists so much, because they found this term in Old High Germ- German, hliodarsaza, and it means hearing sitting. So it's heathen zen. <laughs> you know, it was the idea that you sit and you calm the monkey mind, as we would say today, you know, whatever they called it then, I don't know. But you allow yourself to go into silence and then you're listening for the answers to the pressing issues that are affecting you. You know, that it's possible to get that wisdom. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a nature-based practice. It doesn't involve necessarily intermediaries. This gets back to something you were saying before because, you know, there were specialists, there were experts who were really good at going into trance and prophesying. And so they had the, the, uh, the, the wise women who, who had those capacities who people would go to, but it was also recognized that everybody had this to some degree and there were ceremonies anybody could perform or meditations that anybody could do, you know, maybe it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a formal meditation, but there might be certain acts that you carried out, you know, a a small ceremony, like, you know, gathering the crest of water from nine waves was a thing that the Scots used to do as a way to acquire water for healing, you know, and then anointing somebody with that water. But, you know, the, the acts were something that anybody could do. And we've lost a lot of that, you know, so that people feel very insecure about, am I doing it right? 
And that really gets in our way, you know, Mm -hmm. because intention is really important. And, you know, you will find your way over time. Well, and it sounds like, too, and part of what your book provides is some some indication that you're not pulling it out of thin air. <laughs> and it gives or, you- or maybe you are, but in the sense that you're connecting with <laughs> the air and, and what's there to be found, but that the, these practices have roots and we may have, there may have been some, there, there's a severance where some things were lost, but that it's, it's not entirely groundless to start where we are with, with what we know. In fact, there's no other way we can start. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's, uh, I, I think so much of this has been really uh, romanticized. It's sort of like people expect the heavens to open and hear an actual voice in their head, like a, really hear the voice, like somebody was in the room. And I'm not saying that doesn't ever happen, but that's not necessarily how it's going to happen. You know, but people don't know how to recognize their inner voice. You know, and so this is what I meant before about how it gets mystified because there are expectations, cultural expectations about what it's supposed to look like. And when it happens to them, people often don't recognize it because they don't respect their own, their own inner authority, their own experience. You know, well, I don't know. Was this real? Was it not real? I mean, that that's the path, I guess, is figuring out how to discern that how you know having a a, as they say in buddhism how to discriminate between the true and the untrue you know Mm -hmm. but um yeah it makes me think about uh, i had a teacher who who's a midwife and she described her her way of describing intuition was it occurs to me Mm -hmm. so people would ask questions like well when do you check blood pressure and she would say if it occurs to me that that it and she trusted that intuition deeply, but it wasn't it wasn't like lightning striking when it would come. It was more like just a, an impulse arising. And I wonder if that's a bit what you're talking about that that a yes. lot of these ways of being in relationship are maybe quieter than what we expect them to be. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get across, you know, and and I think that it's really our ability to do that is really hampered by the fact that particularly women are taught to mistrust our inner authority and to look for external validation, you know, and men too will are, are taught that, you know, there are authorities and that you must follow the, the proper way and so forth. And, oh, this is what I was going to say before is that it is a loss for us that we don't have the benefit of, you know, an unbroken pass, passing down from, you know, hundreds of generations. I mean, there's a certain body of cultural riches that builds up that way that people in some indigenous cultures are still drawing on and others have had it, you know, wrecked with the boarding school system and so forth. But in the, in the outlawing of language, which is such a crucial carrier of cultural philosophies. But, you know, um, there, there is that severance, and so we don't have a lot of depth in terms of the person-to-person transmission that's so crucial in, in this kind of knowledge, you know, and that is something that we're going to have to build back up, you know, because just as they got it from the source and it took, you know, a long time for them to get the depth that they had, but we can get it back. We just have to 
be able to realize, you know, it is a process. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, mm-hmm. they have faith in it. Mm-hmm. We just have a few minutes left, but I'm wondering if you can speak briefly to the this this book and your work generally is the unauthorized history of women. And to collect it, you stepped out of the spheres that, that were sort of authorized. And I'm wondering where you found the courage or willingness to go behind, beyond the edges of what was prescribed or, or what you were listening to to know that that's what was needed. In my life, it, it became impossible. You know, I won a scholarship to an Ivy League school and, you know, everything converged at once. It was just the perfect storm. And I said, what am I doing here? Because all the agendas that were governing, governing the way academia operated, uh, you know, I just... I was so alienated from it, and I didn't feel like I was going to ever be able to function in that setting because of the um, the dogmas that, that ruled over, you know, how you interpret history and where women are in history or the, the pagan or the ethnic aspect of it, all of that. And I just said, okay, look, I'm going to just have to break out on my own to do this. And it's, it was very pressing for me personally. I, I needed to know this I needed to know it for my own life. and But I also saw in a larger way how the entire culture needed it because the the colonization of women in Western Civ goes so very deep. And, you know, it's governed by these same doctrines that I just, I just refused. I just said, I'm not going to, I'm not doing this. And so I, I did, I stepped out of it and I said, I'm going to have to do this as an independent scholar. And ultimately, you know, I do use those academic sources, but I'm not subject to people standing over me saying, you have to interpret it this way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that made a big difference because it gave me the freedom to explore what was actually out there in all of those scholarly studies that could not be said, not in the ways that I wanted to say it inside of of the academy Mm -hmm. well may we all be brave enough to follow what's what's calling us and what what we each find needs doing may we so (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for being here max and for giving your life over to the work of unearthing the suppressed histories of women taking the various threads you found and weaving them into a tapestry for the women and men of this time who are living in the consequences of all that was lost. Thank you, Annie. I I appreciate you inviting me. My guest today has been Max Deschoux, founder of the Suppressed Histories Archives and author of Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100. We'll be continuing our conversation with Max in the months to come. In the meantime, you can follow her work at suppressedhistories.net. Next week, Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio will be back with Susan Olesic's Nine Prisons, One Key series, focusing on Type 5, The Observer Investigator. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be with you all today. Thank you for listening in. Until next time, may we be willing to stand at the edge, unblinking, together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice.
Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel.